Hi, I'm Ali from the Stolen Lives podcast. You're listening to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, a podcast about true crimes in schools. So join Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host, as she presents the bad apples within the school system. You'll hear school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 64. The intro you heard at the start was done by a fellow Australian podcaster, Ali, so I'm not sure if you picked up the Australian accent. Here is a preview of her podcast, Stolen Lives True Crime, which focuses on missing and murdered children. Take a listen. We often hear of parents warning their children about the dangers of strangers. But the reality is, children are more likely to come to harm by people they know than people they don't. Here at Stolen Lives, children cases are important to us. That's why we do what we do. We hope to bring awareness to the lost or to the forgotten. Cases like the brutal murder of Kelsey Shelton-Smith, searching for answers to discover the identity of Delta Dawn, and the unsolved missing persons case of Tabitha Tutors. Listen to Stolen Lives on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to great podcasts like the one you're listening to today. The story today happened in China and the music you just heard is an instrument being played by a child, which I will discuss more about later. Now today's story is one of those stories where you'll need your tissues. But first, let's say hello to some good apples from our apple orchard in Facebook. Hello to Lindsay M. Holland, Patrick Lockyer, Karen Lee, Nancy McKinnon, Mary Lilu Alba, and J.C. Jimenez Carabalos. Hello, everyone. And since the story took place in China, let's make China our country of focus. In China, it's a delicacy to eat scorpions on a stick. Live scorpions are dipped in boiling oil and then skewered onto a stick. Yum. In China, it is law to visit your elderly parents regularly. It is called the Elderly Rights Law. Unlike other countries, the elderly are not forgotten or put into nursing homes. 
In 2020, it's estimated that there are between 30 to 40 million more Chinese men than women. This is a result of the one-child policy, which led to parents wanting sons instead of daughters. China owns all of the pandas in the world, and therefore, if a zoo wishes to loan them, they must pay one million US dollars per year. So how can we discuss China and not mention the Great Wall? Now, did you know its length is 21 million meters? Wow. And also, the bricks were held together by a mixture of sticky rice flour and slaked lime. Now, slaked lime is a soft, white, crystalline, very slightly water-soluble powder obtained by the action of water on lime and it's used chiefly in mortars. And here's a fact that I never knew. Virginity can actually be restored, yes, believe it or not. It's popular in China for women to have plastic surgery to restore their virginity, and the procedure is called hymenorophy. Some women do not want their future husbands to know that they were not virgins anymore, so they have the surgery to reconstruct their hymens before the wedding night as you do. <laughs> and finally, we know China is the most populated country in the world and therefore has huge traffic jam problems. Well, the Chinese have a solution for this. If you're stuck, just call the bottleneck rescuers. Two guys on a motorbike will come to you. One will take your place in your car while the other one takes you on his motorbike to where you want to go. Fascinating, right? So now let's preview the story today. It's called Chinese Burn. The students were performing in the theatre for the Chinese dignitaries. What happened? The story today took place in 1994 in a city in the far northwest of China called Karamei. Most people worked for the National Petroleum Company. Oil had been discovered there in the 1950s in a remote desert area and workers came from all over China to work there. At the time of this incident, the population was roughly 200,000, but today, Karamei has now grown into a city of about half a million people. The name Karamei means black oil. So, back in 1994, there was a well-known and significant landmark called the Karamei Friendship Theatre. It was built in 1958 and then renovated in 1992. It had been a prominent landmark in Karamei and political centre, which hosted government meetings, ceremonies and congresses. On the day of December 8, 1994, the Friendship Theatre was to host a special performance by students from various schools in the provincial area. In the audience were provincial officials and members of Karamei's communist political elite. Students from primary and middle schools were specially chosen to present a cultural program for the dignitaries. These students were the best and brightest from their schools. To be chosen was a great honour for the students and they had prepared for many months. They would be presenting various songs and dances. The students and teachers arrived first, taking their seats in the back rows of the theatre. They awaited excitedly for the dignitaries to arrive and their entrance was met with thunderous applause. 
All in all, the theatre was packed with about 800 people, with the officials sitting in the front rows. In China, the politicians are referred to as cadres, so you will hear this term used throughout the story. At some point during the performance, smoke was noticed on the stage. A curtain had caught on fire and got out of control very quickly. People started running out of the theatre, trying to access one of the eight exits. However, all of the exits were locked except one. What resulted was an utter catastrophe. Out of the 800 or so people in attendance, 325 lost their lives, with 288 of those being the schoolchildren, and many more people were injured. You are now going to hear various accounts from people who were there and had witnessed what happened. Here is the account of a teacher who survived. During the performance, I smelled burning, but there wasn't any smoke. I figured it was just someone burning trash outside, and then something dropped onto the stage. I thought it was confetti. There weren't any flames. The kids were already standing up to leave. But when they saw the cadres up the front were still seated, everybody sat back down. As soon as we sat down, things started falling onto the stage and the curtains caught fire. That's when I yelled for the kids to get up. I was sitting next to some junior high school students, but my students were up the front. I went up and I grabbed their hands and ran. None of the doors were open. There was a huge rush of students and only one door open. Those kids had nowhere to go. A student who escaped recalled the following. After the first act, it was our turn. A minute into our performance, something above the stage, there was a curtain in front, a middle curtain and a white scrim, and another curtain behind. Behind that curtain and the scrim, there were stage lights. The curtains caught fire and a piece of cloth fell down. After that, a big chunk of curtain came down. Someone should have used the microphone and told those kids to get out. When the flames burst out, it was chaos. No one could hear anything. We will now go on to see that there were many factors that led to the tragedy. But the first pivotal action was when a female government official yelled out the following. Everybody keep quiet. Don't move. Let the leaders go first. The audience of teachers and students obeyed this command, watching the officials leave the hall. But the fire spread quickly, and within 10 minutes, and with only one exit door open, the fate of those inside had been sealed. What followed was intense anger towards the officials who had saved themselves first. A parent who lost their child had this to say, What makes me angry is the whole chain of events before and after the fire. It was corrupt, rotten to the core. Those cadres screwed up. They're all rotten. Now they won't let us speak or listen to a word we say. When the fire broke out, the cadres didn't try to open the doors to save our kids. They trampled over their bodies. Seven out of eight fire exits were blocked. So how did the cadres get out? Through the only open door, over our kids' bodies. Only 20% were burned. The rest died of smoke, inhalation or being trampled. The cadres saved themselves, but our kids never had a chance. We found them piled up against locked doors, bodies piled two metres high. When the fire truck came, it was only half full of water, and they didn't bring axes. 
Finally, some people in the crowd picked up a big log and smashed through the front door and all the bodies came tumbling out. Somehow the cadres escaped, but our kids' bodies were covered in footprints. They were suffocated and trampled. A witness remembered the following when the fire department arrived. The fire department was only 500 metres away, but took 45 minutes to arrive. They showed up with three empty trucks, not a drop of water in any of them. So they went back for water. They didn't have tools to break down the doors while the kids were burning inside. The fire department couldn't open the gate. People from the mall across the road came over to help. One man from the mall used an axe. It took him one blow to split the roll-down gate. After he split the gate open, he collapsed on the ground. And why? Because behind the gate, there was a pile of kids' bodies a metre or two high. After the fire started, the power went out, which affected the electronic gates. Here is one man's account. The metal roll-down gate on the south exit should have been rolled up three metres high. It was an electronic gate. When the hall caught fire, the gate short-circuited. And why? Because when they installed the wires, they were not laid in a conduit. The gate was short-circuited and it blacked out the building. The gate needed electricity to go up and down. When the power went out, it got stuck. The hall managers wanted to stop people coming in after the performance started, but they didn't do their jobs and man the doors. So they lowered the gate to 1.2 metres and that's why so many people died. The frenzied crowd pulled it down further. Everyone was trying to cram through the 1.2 metre space. Some of the small kids could run straight out. The kids were ducking. Even some of the adults were ducking. That became the gate of hell. The firemen came without clothes or masks. They needed access to the fire, but spraying the outside was useless. They could only spray into the exit. The firemen couldn't access the auditorium. The vast majority choked to death. The provincial fire chief investigated the fire, and here is what he concluded. Judging by what we saw, the fire wasn't very large. One big reason the fire was so deadly was that the safety gates were locked and covered with metal sliding grates. This is a blatant violation of Article 11 of the Chinese Fire Code, which states, Crowded venues must maintain unblocked safety exits, and we see here, after the fire started, the exits were locked, which caused a large number of deaths. The second reason so many died is the construction materials used in the hall's auditorium and stage. They were highly flammable materials. The ceiling was compound fiberboard. The seats and the covers were polyester, and the inside was fake leather and foam. The entire frame of the seats were wood. The stage area problem is pretty obvious. Thirteen curtains are polyester and one is shiny. It stings when you burn the shiny curtain. And then he does a demonstration where he burns a piece of the curtain to demonstrate. And he goes on to say, It's very flammable and very toxic. This was the source of all the lethal, toxic and flammable gas. It paralyzes the windpipe instantly, causing death by asphyxiation. In one stage, bad leadership was a lethal factor. Second, the management was also lax. There were no safety measures, no fire emergency drills, and they didn't fix the fire hazards. 
Third, extreme bureaucratic laziness on the part of the managers and leaders. The stage caught fire once before. They knew there were problems. Furthermore, they all signed the fire inspection registry and completely failed to take any action. Their safety equipment was lacking. To them, civilian safety is a joke. This flippant, bureaucratic attitude is another reason the fire happened. This corridor goes around the hall and shouldn't be clogged. Piles of random stuff, a fridge, a couch, here's another steel grate. This door to the corridor was closed and locked. China's code states, grates can't be installed over safety exits. And then he takes the camera around the corridor that goes around the hall and you can just see it's just full of all of this junk which which shouldn't be there as he said. The tragedy resulted in 14 people going to prison including four high-ranking officials. However there was outrage as the sentences only ranged from two to four years. But this was only one of the many injustices that the families went on to endure. The children were buried very hastily and death certificates were never issued for the deceased children, and the government also never issued a public apology. No memorial services had been arranged, and the families felt the government had tried to sweep the whole disaster under the rug as quickly as possible. Parents were given up to $8,000, but this was of little consolation. A year later, it was announced that the theatre would be demolished, but the families and residents protested, and very surprisingly, they won out. But then, three years after that, it was finally demolished, leaving only the front hall standing. Today, it stands in the middle of a park, but there is no plaque or any commemoration to the victims. The anniversary of the fire is never acknowledged. Now, one would think that a tragedy on such a scale must be a one-off event. But I was floored to read that 17 years earlier, another fire in a hall had claimed almost 700 people, again mostly children. Just as with the Karamei fire, the government suppressed the details and blocked any investigation. But that's not the end of the story. Get this, only two weeks before the Karamei fire, Another fire in a dance hall claimed 230 people, again, mostly children. I just feel like I'm in the twilight zone. I just can't believe that this is all true. At the time, news of the disaster was reported briefly by the local television stations, but very little was known about what happened outside of Karamei itself. The information I was able to find was very brief, but luckily I came across two men who were pivotal in giving the tragedy worldwide exposure. It was 12 years after the fire that a Chinese journalist and blogger named Chen Yaowen managed to put together a comprehensive account of the tragedy which he posted on his website. The fire occurred in pre-internet China. But at the time, footage had been captured by home camcorders and news cameras. Chen was able to get access to this footage and interview people who had been there. However, Chen's expose was censored, but it was picked up by the American media company Reuters, which then resulted in other international media featuring the tragedy. Here is what Chen said. The Karamei Inferno 12 years ago that shook the heavens has always been agony at the bottom of my heart. 
I felt the need to do something to comfort these innocent souls. Comfort angry survivors and the injured who are better off dead. Even then, 12 years ago, when I tried to set up interviews with the victims, some refused to talk because they were under pressure. I knew local officials were following me, but I never thought my report would be banned or that the local government would conceal the truth. Then the story received further coverage by an independent Chinese filmmaker named Zhu Jin, who created a six-hour documentary which is available to be viewed on YouTube. It was only through this documentary that I was able to tell the story more thoroughly. He knew that he had to proceed carefully and film secretly, aware that the Chinese authorities would be hostile towards his expose. Somehow he was able to avoid detection. Before he started, he knew full well that it would never screen in China, saying, It's definitely impossible for it to be distributed in China. At least it's impossible right now. However, it was able to be screened in Hong Kong, as the former British colony had a semi-autonomous status under Chinese rule and therefore enjoyed a certain degree of freedom of speech. Zhu said at the time that he looked forward to the day when the story could reach more of his countrymen. At the premiere of the film in Hong Kong in 2010, he was asked if he wanted the then president to see the film, to which he replied, Of course I do. I hope the entire central leadership will watch this movie. It will inform high officials that such a group of parents exist and their current situation. It's a way of understanding the lives of regular people. Zhu started the film by arriving unannounced at the cemetery where the victims were buried. He came across parents who were visiting their children's graves. He introduced himself and explained to them what he was doing and the families were only too keen to allow him to interview them and filmed them laying flowers and gifts at the graves. They were able to give him the names and contacts of other families and the film then shows footage of interviews in people's homes. I'm now going to provide some of the interviews with the families, who are able to describe in more detail about what happened. These accounts were so hard to watch. The parents were so grief-stricken, even 13 years on from the fire. This first interview is with a mother who talks about when she found out about the fire. That day, I got a call from a co-worker. He asked if my son was at the Friendship Hall, and I said yes. As soon as I heard Friendship Hall, I sat down on the ground. My co-worker said, what are you doing? Go find your son. I said, there's no way that they'll get out alive. No way. There's no way out. All the doors are locked. I know they're locked because I've been there for meetings. That's Karame's weak spot. We don't pay attention to our own safety. Everyone who'd been there felt unsafe. Maybe we were too apathetic. I blame myself. I knew something was wrong. Why didn't I complain to someone? Why didn't I speak up? But now it's too late. It's our fault. We helped create the problem. We were part of it. Everyone knew those exits weren't safe, but no one stood up and said so. One day, some of us were in the restroom and we were saying, oh, this place is awful. If something happened, how would we ever get out? But we didn't complain to anyone. Families like us get criticised if we seem too happy. People say, you have it easy. It must be nice. You got to retire early, stay home with your kid and still draw a pension. 
but they have no idea what it's like for us to be jobless in your 30s and have nothing to look forward to. This next mother talks about trying to find her daughter. They wouldn't let us enter the hospital, but they had started moving bodies to the mortuary. I snuck into the mortuary by hiding in a truck filled with corpses. The first thing I did was to check the kids' feet because I knew my daughter's embroidered shoes. I looked until I found a pair marked number eight elementary, which was my daughter's school. I lifted the sheet and looked, but it wasn't her. I recognised a few of the kids, so I kept searching until I found her. I knew she was dead, but I got a blanket anyway. She was so cold and I wrapped her up in it. The government promised us several things. One was to certify that our children died as martyrs in service to their country. We found out later they were just humouring us to keep quiet. This next mother talks about their tradition when burying the dead. In our hometown tradition... When a person dies, no matter how they die, we wait a week to bury them, to make sure they're not alive, not still breathing or anything. But we had to bury our kids the next day. Why the big rush? Because they wanted to cover up the fire. They dragged me away from the truck and wouldn't let me see my son, just loaded his coffin onto the truck and drove to the cemetery. I have these delusions. What if he's still alive? What if he woke up in his grave and why didn't I think to put an axe or something in his coffin? So if he woke up, he could chop his way out. I wouldn't care if he was crippled or retarded as long as he was alive. Next, you will hear some audio taken at the burials of the children. It's very distressing, so you may want to skip this part. You will hear sounds of the bulldozers digging and burying the children and the parents grieving so intensely. They just buried them all in one big, massive area. So listen to the audio. The parent was saying, has heaven gone blind? You take innocent lives and leave us to grieve. Heaven is blind. You take innocent lives. These next parents talk about the teachers who were there at the theatre. At home, children are our responsibility, but then you entrust them to a school. You expect their teachers to take on the role of parents. If you see the kids are in danger, you help them escape. If you see the place is already on fire with all those hot lights, some of those kids who got burned are still alive. They know what happened. But if you ask them, they say they don't. Another parent said, We stormed the school, demanding that the teacher come out. They put the teacher under protection. If they hadn't, we would have beaten up that teacher. But later we thought, why blame the teacher? But we were confused then, thinking, you got out but where are the kids? The parent goes on to say, Since the fire, we've changed the way we teach our kids. We used to tell them, listen to your teachers, stay still, do what you're told. We don't say that anymore, because if kids today can't protect themselves, who will? Every time we hear of one of these school performances, 
it's like a knife to the heart. We're terrified. I hear that people from Beijing called our kids stupid, that they weren't smart, but they were all smart or beautiful. It's been 10 years and still no justice. How can they treat us like this? Our kids weren't stupid. If those doors weren't locked, they would have got out. But how can we go on living when our kids have been burned alive? Earlier, I described how the female official called for everyone to stay seated. It was established afterwards that she had sheltered in a bathroom and even locked the door so no one else could come in. Here is what one parent said about this. In my daughter's 8th grade class, 32 died. They were not 5 metres from the bathroom. The deputy secretary, Kuang Lee, locked herself in the women's bathroom and the vice chair of Karame's party congress was in the men's. The mother went on to say that almost this entire class was killed, yet the teacher survived. These next parents speak about what it meant to lose a child. We had another child. Others weren't so lucky. Imagine how it feels to be childless. Some of those who couldn't have a child adopted one. Others decided not to. Without a child, where do you put your hopes? It's sad to see them now. Some are mentally imbalanced. At least now, no matter what, we have something to live for. We have to go on for his sake. Force ourselves to keep our spirits up. The ones without kids spend every day sunk in their own grief. They have no outlet for their emotions. No place to put their feelings. We raised our son the traditional way, to respect authority and tradition. But in the fire, it was the naughty kids, the ones who never listened, who escaped. The kids who towed the line and listened to their teachers, who always followed the rules, they stayed in their seats because their teachers told them to. When their teachers said, let the leaders exit first, they obeyed. But the naughty kids saw fire and ran. The case only came to trial because families kept petitioning and protesting. That's why the government acted. After countless appeals, that's the only reason they handed down a few token sentences. If those families had just sat around and waited, there'd be no verdict. Another parent said, At the time, they paid us damages for the loss of life. But what about the emotional loss? How do you calculate pain and suffering? not just ours, but our son's. He was only five when his sister died. He'd wake up crying, screaming that his sister was burning to death in school. How is that not pain and suffering? He'd cry every night until his pillow was soaking wet. A year after the fire, the Burns victims started coming home. There were three in our neighbourhood and they were badly burnt. My son used to play with them. But then the other kids were afraid because of the way they looked but my son wasn't. The two of them were so close, sometimes he'd get angry and just sit by her grave. Here is a family talking about having another child. In 1996, there was a policy change. If your child died or got injured in the fire, you could have another. So we had a second baby. I tell my daughter, you have to study hard because your sister gave her life so that you could be born. If you don't study hard, You'll be letting her down. Your sister gave her life for your happiness. We will now look at the media response to the tragedy. One parent said, Why did the media leave out the fire from Karame's 50th anniversary 
of 100 historic events. The fire was a big deal, an historic event. How could they ignore it? This is probably the most important event since Karamay's founding. The cadres covered it up. They'll interview witnesses of the Nanjing massacre, which happened 70 years ago, but instead of interviewing us about the fire, they distort facts and erase history. A while back, there was a CCTV chief. After the fire, he censored a focus interview program. He said it was just a few kids that died and reporting it would have given China a negative image. They feared riling up the people and making the victims angry. But if they want to make a harmonious society, the first step would be to give victims some kind of closure. In the 13 years since the fire, the government hasn't apologised once. I was able to find the interview with the man that was just referred to, and he was asked the following question. When you were the president of CCTV, did you kill any programs due to outside pressure? And here is his response. I did. At certain times, there's a delicate question of balancing the degree. Otherwise, what do we call censorship? The most typical example was when some kids died from a fire in Karamay. I finished the program and I thought it was well done and very touching. But I said, there are some passionate emotions in Karamay there. I said, if this program is aired, Will it calm down the emotions of the local public or will it add fuel to the fire? If it's adding fuel to the fire, then we cannot broadcast it. If it can calm things down and it won't trigger some unrest, then we can air it. The problem is the situation over there was red hot and if you air this, it will anger the parents of the kids and add pressure to local officials. And the reporter of the program wept with a sunken head. Three days later, the Central Propaganda Department issued an official notice banning reports about the accident. And people said that I did the right thing to kill the program. Well, isn't that really interesting that there is actually an official propaganda department? In my mind, no matter how bad a story is, it needs to be aired in its entirety, no matter how shocking it is, you know, the world needs to know about these things. Now, after getting to the end of the six-hour film, I then watched the last interview, which was the most poignant of all. The film ends with one of the student survivors. You just see a black screen and you hear her voice. I didn't think that they would show her face, but then you actually get to see her. You see photos of her before the tragedy and then after, and it just made me cry. Her name is Yang Lu, and she is sitting in a wheelchair. Her legs are really badly burned, as is her face. Here is what the girl said. Those things, I don't think about them anymore. If I did, I'd get depressed. It's useless. I just hope for better medical treatment, and I hope that my parents stay healthy. I couldn't imagine what would happen if they got sick. I do my best to be healthy for my parents so they can be more at ease about my future, so they can be happier too. Oh goodness, how sad is that? You also see footage of her in the hospital getting skin grafts, which no child should have to endure, but she somehow manages to survive it all. And then the next part of the film just crushes me. She starts singing a song that she wrote herself after the fire. 
but at the end she apologizes that her voice doesn't sound like it used to but to me it just sounded so beautiful here are the words of the song and then you will hear the song at the end of this episode this is the song that she wrote herself the song is called summer night's waltz the night breeze cools and comforts wafting flowers that lightly sway the bright moon climbs to treetops young friends are here boys are strumming and girls are singing a song spending this wonderful time together happily together in this mystifying night she then talks about how the song came about saying after i was bedridden for almost a year my classmates all came over they all survived because they didn't go to the theater they came to see me and wheelchaired me through Caramay Park. After I got back and I was in bed, I don't know why, but this melody was in my head and I wrote it down. She then talks about when she went to visit the graves. I had my dad buy balloons and candy. I used coloured markers to write Happy Birthday and Happy Children's Day, and then I filled them with air and tied them up. Then I carried them to the grave. I looked around and I walked around. My feet were injured, but I kept going. I walked a bit at the tombs and had a look. On each grave, I hung little balloons. Then I felt at ease. It felt like I got closure. Oh dear, this is just so hard. Despite its length, the documentary is absolutely riveting. It was shot entirely in black and white, with the filmmaker capturing the intense grief of the people involved. There is no dramatic music or narration just raw footage of people inside their homes telling their stories. There are long moments of silence with the camera still and focused on the people. The interviewer never speaks, just letting the story unfold. What the parents went through is so palpable. It's unlike anything else that I have ever watched of people recalling the death or murder of loved ones. They're not poised, controlled or stoic. These are the types of documentary that I love watching. Small, unknown, independent docos without huge budgets. There are no bells and whistles, just raw storytelling. I will put the documentary in the Facebook group with suggested sections to watch. There is footage of the students performing, the attempted rescue by the fire department with very graphic scenes of the children, also footage at the hospital and also the burials at the cemetery. I really force myself to watch it as reading the story is just not enough to understand the absolute tragedy. I believe that the very graphic footage should be put out in the public, as it allows us to fully comprehend the magnitude of the tragedies like this one, and hopefully never allow it to be repeated. As we have seen in previous episodes, lax safety standards have been improved, but of course, it's just so unfair that innocent children have to be the catalysts for these improvements. Now, if you want to find the doco yourself, it's called Karame Part 1 and Karame Part 2. And that's spelled K-A-R-A-M-A-Y. And the music you heard right at the start is of an instrument being played by a girl whose sister had died in the fire. And here is an audio clip of the students singing in the theatre, not knowing about the horrific tragedy that was about to happen. Listen to the audio.
there are really no words that can express how awful this story is, but I'm so happy that I found it and that I was able to share it with you. I've told so many sad stories, but this one was just so much more poignant because of the film and the interviews with the parents. And you will hear the girl singing her song at the end of this episode. So now here is a preview of the next episode. It's called Load of Rubbish. The high school teacher was missing. Where was she? And I'd now like to finish with a quote about the fire from a mother who looks at her dead son's photo and says, My dear son, in this world which you have left, there is one proverbial rule for all, be they white or black or brown or yellow. When danger strikes, let women and children go first. It might not be in our constitution or in any party document, but it's a basic law of human behaviour. This law broke down that day in our city. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.